From OTMP, this is your COVID-19 update. It is Thursday, the 16th of June, 2022. The recent increase in case numbers and tightening of social distancing policies has again reminded Hong Kong residents that although the rest of the world has moved on to other things, our city continues to march to the dynamic zero-COVID beat. In our latest podcast, Dr. David Owens and Professor Ben Cowling discuss a wide range of issues around the science of COVID, including the emerging sixth wave, the evidence for vaccines and masks, and lessons from the Russian flu pandemic of 1888. They also discuss long COVID and answer questions from you, our listeners. Ben, it's been a little while since we've caught up to, to do a podcast. We've had a few, well, a lot of chats over the last few weeks. Obviously, there's a lot going on. And report today that the effective numbers has increased over two, indicating that we might be seeing spiking cases. Do you think we're do you think we're in the sixth wave? Yeah, we're now in the middle of June and infections have been rising for the last two weeks. The daily case numbers have been rising. The reproductive number of two is just a reflection of that. Is is it's just an estimate based on patterns in case numbers and since the case numbers are going up, then the reproductive number is, is going to be above one. I think it is likely that we're going to see infections rising for a little while. But what I still don't have a, a, a clear prediction of is, is how large the sixth wave might ultimately be. Hopefully, it's not going to be too large. Hopefully, there won't be too many infections and, and the, the, the numbers of cases won't be rising for, for too long. But it's not easy to, to, to estimate Firstly, how many people have got immunity because of past infections and vaccinations and whatnot? And then also to what extent the control measures that are in place at the moment. There are still control measures. For example, the, the intensive monitoring of, of infections in school-aged children and control of school transmission. How, how much would those measures contribute to reducing transmission and therefore reducing the number of people that, that might get infected in, in the sixth wave? So I'm, I'm, I'm still... Working on that, it's my day job, and uh, we, we may have some estimates to report soon or some predictions to report soon, but uh, not not yet. I guess the other factor at play there is which variant mm. or, or sub-variant uh, wins out, so to speak. And, and it's been interesting looking at the data. I think the data from South Africa, especially from Gauteng, has been, has been fascinating, mm. hasn't it? We, you know, they've given this really clear three to four monthly waves. They had the beta, of course, didn't they? And then they had the Omicron uh, BA1, I think. And uh, But mm-hmm. subsequently, of course, they've had BA4, BA5, and we're seeing cases increasing in, in, in the UK, in the US, and most of the world now. I think that's reflective of the number of imported cases we're seeing here. How do you think that's likely to play out in terms of the data that you've seen from Hong Kong? Well, our fifth wave was, of course, BA2, um, and since then, we have detected cases of BA 2.12.1 in the community, which is slightly different to BA 2, but not that different. So BA 2.12.1 may not pose a, a great risk to Hong Kong because we have such a lot of immunity from, yeah. from the BA 2 wave. And people who got infected with BA 2 most likely won't have much chance of getting infected with 2.12.1. There may be some reinfections, but, but I, I, I doubt there'll be very many. Uh, BA4 and BA5 pose a bigger threat because they're a little bit more different to, to BA2. But we haven't got BA4, BA5 in the community at the moment. Um, and the, the travel-related measures will delay the time at which those will make it into the community. They'll get in sooner or later, but uh, they, they haven't got into the community yet. 
those may pose a bigger threat when they do come in. Maybe that would be a, a, the, the cause of a subsequent wave if we do have a sixth wave with 2.12.1. But I mean, we don't know if BA4, BA5 or something else could get in anytime and suddenly pop up in the community and then that could take over. Of course, when we talk about the threat, it's one of the issues we have in Hong Kong is we're continuing to measure daily cases and everybody's so focused on the numbers. I mean, you know, the rest of the world has moved on, haven't they? And, and, and rightly or wrongly, there's arguments that you know, maybe the mitigation could be better, mm. um, the elimination of masks, the, the failure to focus on ventilation in in, in the UK, for instance, where it's quite a big one, I think it's about, according to the ONS, is about one 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 and a half percent of the population affected at the moment. Yep. And really, life is 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 you know back to normal. And yep. um, whereas in Hong Kong, we're we're sort of obsessing over every case, and our borders are still closed. Yeah. Is there an argument to that delaying the entry of four and five and whatever it's going to be next? Maybe negative. I mean, this is something I've been looking at. We do we not want our immunity wall to be as 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 good as it can be? And clearly, we want it with vaccination as much as possible. But we know from the other countries, it's not going to be possible to control this uh, epidemic with, with 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 vaccination alone. If you were just looking at a purely science based approach, would you open the borders? Mm. I feel that. That's a difficult question. You asked a lot of questions there, David. I, I think in terms of immunity, we have to look at both sides, and I'm sure the public health officials are looking at both sides. On one side, there's certainly advantages of having a lot of immunity in the population, which may result from infections as well as from vaccinations. But on the other side, there's also the concern about the consequences of those infections. And if I was purely advocating on a, on a public health basis, narrowly focusing on COVID, I would say I prefer there's less COVID in the community because that means there's less people getting sick, less people off work, less people in hospital with COVID, potentially less people dying and, and less long COVID and whatnot. But of course, there, there's more to public health than COVID and there's enormous consequences of the public health measures. And if there's not forecast to be pressure on hospitals and hospital services from, from COVID, as there's not now in, in many parts of the world, then I think we have to think carefully about the rationale for continuing to restrict what's generally a very mild infection. But I have to be careful that I am a public health expert and my preference would be not to have COVID, would be not to have other infections and, and you know, to have everybody as healthy as possible all the time. But in reality, the, 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 the government has to find a balance. And I think at the early stage of the pandemic, it was important to, to stop transmission as much as possible. Now we have vaccines and also effective antiviral drugs. I think we have to find a balance where we're, we're not focusing solely on the threat posed by COVID and, and thinking about the balance of, of public health measures and, and hopefully aiming, aiming to get back to normal. If I can go back to one of the other things you, you said uh, just a moment ago, one of my concerns throughout the last two and a half years now is about situational awareness. So we want to know what's going on. Are the numbers of infections going up or down? And what really is the level of infection in the community? You mentioned the ONS survey in the UK saying that at this point in time, 1% of the population are, are suffering from an infection. And that, of course, an infection may, may take a week or two to clear. So it's it, that, that 1% is, is reflective of a, of a prevalence at, at this point in time. We don't really have comparable 
surveillance data for Hong Kong. And one of the problems that we face since the beginning is changing case definitions, changing reporting approaches, changing availability of tests. And so while the case numbers have been going up in the last two weeks, I'm still trying to assess and trying to judge to what extent there might be more infections than, than we know about. Uh, that's almost certainly the case. But what's the ratio of that? You know, in, in the past, I think a year ago, we'd estimated there were three or four infections for every confirmed case. I think in the fifth wave, it, it may have been similar, maybe maybe less than that, because there was a lot of use of rapid tests. Now, I don't have a good handle on, on what's the, 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 the ratio of, of undetected cases to confirmed cases. Uh, three to one, four to one, five to one, or something else. And I think that's changing. And what that means is we have trouble with situational awareness because we don't have this stable data source of, uh, of the level inf- of infections in the community. We do have reports at the moment on the daily press conference of the number of people in hospital with COVID. But I think we also have to be careful in interpreting that because not all those people will be in hospital because of COVID. If all people admitted to hospital for surgery, for for, for treatments of other kinds, if they're all tested for COVID, of course, there's going to be some infections among those people. And that's not the reason why they're in hospital. So what we really want to know is what's the level of severe disease in the community? And if there's an indication that that's rising, and particularly if there's an indication it could rise to a level that, that we have trouble coping with, that's when I, I think it would be justified to think about um, a little bit more of a public health response. But that may, may not happen in the sixth wave at all. Uh, in other parts of the world, it hasn't happened recently. We saw that internationally, didn't we, with COVID, that the, the number of cases relatively of people being in hospital with COVID rather than because of COVID mm. uh, increased significantly because it is highly infectious and, and at least in a vaccinated population or in an immune population, a mild a milder disease. And the other factor you, you mentioned for sure one of the issues in, in Hong Kong has been the the way in which the public health regulations almost discourage the collection of data. I know within our own population group, you know, when we talk to patients about infections, it's actually quite unusual to come across somebody who has reported their data mm. because there was an active disincentive. And I think I think recently that yeah, the recent response I thought was really unfortunate to move away from rapid tests and and, and away from accepting uh, you know clinical infections. I, I regularly see children or, or, or adults who've, who've had two vaccinations and they've had a an infection and they don't really need that third dose, but they can't get it unless unless. Um, they need it for the vaccine pass. They need right. it for the vaccine because pass, and so they have to get it, even though they don't yeah. need it. And so yeah. we've got all these sort of disincentives to ideal behaviour going on, including mm. the, the collection of data. And of course, yeah. that that is going to help us, uh, hinder us rather. And I think we're probably going to have to move towards hospital-based severe data. But maybe that's the way we should be going anyway, because frankly, case numbers... Do they really matter? Right. No, but I agree with you, but we don't have that, right? We, we don't have a, a report that I'm aware of of how many people are admitted to hospital because they've got more serious COVID. Yes. There's a report. There's a, a small number of people in intensive care at the moment with COVID. Even for those, I mean, I, we can't be 100% sure that the reason they're in intensive care is because of COVID. And you, you mentioned again that the statistic in the UK, 1% of the population has COVID. In the UK, that would imply that among hospitalised people, people yeah. going to the hospital today, 
1% of them would test positive if tested. And perhaps some people in intensive care for yes. other reasons, post-surgical intensive care or, or whatever. So I think what, what we lack is that those indicators, those metrics of, of incidence in the community. And there's something that I, I, I hope we will be able to, to get because that would be important moving forwards to have that measure of, of the, the impact of, of COVID on, on the healthcare system, not in terms of patients in hospital with COVID, but patients who are requiring hospital care because of the severity of, of the, the, the condition caused by COVID. In terms of effectiveness of vaccination, you've been doing some research recently, haven't you? And um, one of the uh, papers that really had an international impact coming out of Hong Kong was showing that Sinovac vaccine is really a very effective vaccine for severe disease, yeah. providing you have three doses. I think I think one of the misconceptions about Sinovac is it, it's not a good vaccine. It's an excellent vaccine, but you need three doses. Is mm. that a fair assessment? I think particularly for older people. So when we think about how well vaccines work, I, I like to think of the, the, the two maybe barrier, the two lines of defense. So you've got your outer line of defense, which is stopping you from even getting infected. And vaccines can do that to some extent, some better than others. And, and there's a, I'll come back to that in a minute. The second line of defense is if you do get infected, is there something else in your immune system that can somehow fight off the infection and prevent it from being too serious? You know, make, make it that it's more like a cold than a, than a real, like a, a serious flu-like illness or, or, or you, that you need to go to hospital. And so what, what we've shown in Hong Kong is particularly the latter for the prevention of severe disease. Both vaccines do a very good job. The BioNTech vaccine and the, the Sinovac vaccine do a very good job. In older people, the third dose of Sinovac is important. If you don't have that, if you only have the second dose, is, is maybe in the 80s, the, the protection against severe disease. But if you can get the third dose, it takes it up to the high 90s. And for BioNTech, it's already in the high 90s after the second dose. And the third dose takes it even higher than that. Uh, for younger people, two, two doses is already pretty good. And I would, wouldn't discourage anyone from getting a third dose. I mean, it's the recommended thing, but uh, I don't think we need to rush to get it quickly. In due course, there will be a lot of people getting fourth doses, particularly older people have already got their fourth dose in some cases. And I think for younger people, eventually there, there'll be a, a revaccination campaign. The other thing we've been looking at just very recently is how well vaccines can stop infections with Omicron. And there's been a lot of discussion overseas about maybe vaccines don't work that well in preventing Omicron infections because the virus is too different. So you may still get infected, but it won't be so serious if you've been vaccinated. What we're finding in Hong Kong is actually vaccines can stop Omicron infections, but only if you've had a dose recently, either the second dose recently, if you're getting the second dose recently, or the third dose recently, if you had your, your, your second dose some time ago. Within maybe two to three months of that most recent dose, whether it's the second or the third, actually have a reasonable level of protection against Omicron infection. And that seems to be the case, whether it's BioNTech vaccine or the Sinovac vaccine. I'm not sure exactly why, because neither of those vaccines generate very high levels of antibodies against Omicron. And that's usually the marker that we look at for, for protection. I have a suspicion there's some other immune components that, that we're not measuring, which play a role in that protection. But what that means is in the short term, if you can get a dose just before an epidemic, you can have a pretty reasonable level of maybe 50%, 60% protection against infection in that epidemic. And I think that was the case for a lot of people in our fifth wave in Hong Kong, if they just recently had their third dose, or maybe if they only got vaccinated late and they just had their second dose. Many of them may have avoided infection, 
but that protection doesn't last. It wears off. The protection against severe disease, that second line of defense, that's long lasting. So that's good news because it means that you didn't necessarily have to keep getting vaccinated again and again. Once you've had your two or three doses, uh, you should be set for, for quite some time uh, with a very low risk of severe disease. But if you, if you have a, a, a need or a desire to avoid infection for whatever reason, then having a booster dose could, could help to do that. But I'm not sure that we'll see too many people getting vaccinated three, four times a year, which is what I think you would need to do to really minimize your risk of infection through a, a long period of time. And there's, I have a question about whether that would even work because we've only studied third doses and fourth doses. We haven't studied what happens to people who get vaccinated like every three months. So that, that may not may not even work as well as, as, as we imagine. Um, and one of my longstanding research questions for influenza before COVID and now for COVID as well is what would be the optimal timing of vaccination? Should it be every year? For, for COVID, should it be every six months? Should it be more or less frequently? Because there's advantages and disadvantages. And with, with COVID, you, you know that the vaccine we're using hasn't been updated with Omicron. It's still the original virus. Uh, it wasn't updated with alpha, beta, gamma or delta. And it hasn't yet been updated with Omicron. Now there are some, some developments with companies testing Omicron BA1 vaccines. But that's, of course, out of date. Because we've had BA2 and now we've got BA2.1, BA4, BA5. So even if we can get an Omicron BA1 vaccine later this year, uh, it, it, it would do, it would be better than the, the vaccine we're currently using, but it's still not quite up to date. And maybe by later this year, there'll be another variant anyway. So it, we have the same problem with flu that the, the virus keeps changing faster than the vaccine can keep up with. And we're always a little bit behind. And there's, there's, a lot of people, there's an entire group of, of scientists who are trying to work out ways to, to keep up better with circulating viruses. It's not easy because of the production cycle and so on. That was one of the questions I was asked for this mm. podcast was, when are the next generation vaccines going to be available, the nasal vaccines? Do you think the best chance will be going to be the end of this year? For, for the nasal vaccine, I don't know. I know it's being tested and it's a good idea to give you the mucosal immunity and the respiratory tract because that's where the, the, the infection will start typically. And um, when you, of course, when you get a, a Sinovac or a BioNTech vaccine, it's in the arm. So that's giving you general immunity, but not necessarily at the site of, of exposure. Uh, so the, the nasal vaccine has some advantages, but we'll have to wait for the clinical trial results to see how well it actually works in practice. Um, and I, I don't know for flu, there is a nasal spray vaccine, but it's generally not used in adults. And the theory about why it doesn't work that well in adults is because with the immunity that adults already have from their previous infections and vaccinations uh, that the, the nasal spray just doesn't stimulate much of a response anymore that the body's not that interested in it because it's already got some level of immunity anyway but the nasal spray vaccine works very well in kids so perhaps with covid we'll find the nasal spray works well initially because people don't have that much immunity to, to covid uh, we've only had you know a few vaccines and maybe an infection but as time goes on it, it, it might start not working as well because of that. One of the, going back to the point that you made about transmission, I, it's interesting how we see so many shifts. Early on, the whole focus was on reducing transmission and, mm. the, and the effectiveness of the vaccines for alpha in, in reducing transmission. And then it almost shifted where there became this acceptance that you know the vaccines don't do anything for transmission. I never bought that. I have to say, mm. looking at the studies 
like the, the physician studies and the household studies, they, they do seem to have some impact on transition. But what, what you say is very interesting. And it's interesting how intuitively I've been advising people this for, for, for a while. You know, my patients who are in Hong Kong and we have lots of people who are traveling over this summer, whether it's to Europe or to the States, and I've effectively been saying to people, you know, wait till two weeks before you go and mm-hmm. have your booster because you're much more likely to be exposed to COVID in, in your travels. And you know, a, a few questions actually I got when I asked for people if they had any mm. any any questions for you today were, were, were around that, you know, what do I do? Should I have a vaccine before I go? How can I reduce my risks when I travel? Should I wear mm. a mask on an aeroplane? Should I wear sure. a mask when I'm traveling? Um, I know that that's a whole group of questions, but maybe <laughs> it sounds like yeah, tra- the evidence would 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 support if if you're due for your third shot and you haven't had it, and you're thinking, do I have it or don't I have it? Have it just before you go into a high exposure environment. That makes sense because that might reduce. That makes a lot of that sense. Makes a lot of sense. What I would say though, in quite is in a public health sense. I'm not sure that we can use third doses and fourth doses as a transmission limiting strategy sure. because there's only a transient effect unless yes. you're expecting everybody to keep getting vaccinated yeah. you know, every three or four months, which I don't think is feasible. But on a personal level, if you have a, an expectation that you're going into a higher exposure environment, for example, traveling overseas, or because you don't want to get infected when you're overseas because of the problems coming back, that would be a, an ideal time actually to get a booster dose before that. Um, but because that there is evidence that it will reduce your risk of, of, of getting infected. And then the other area of, of that is, is masks. This is another sort mm. of area of your expertise, isn't it, yep. Ben? And I, I don't know how you, you think about this. I a very simple idea, but in, in broadly the West and particularly in the US, we had this, what frankly to me was always a, a, a crazy fight against you know an effective mitigation which yeah. you know, what's the big deal about wearing masks and it became mm. so politicized i think at the other side of the spectrum in in hong kong i wrote something recently in response to a question about you know are we going to be wearing masks in the healthcare environment forever and to which my answer is i really hope we're not because my personal experience is it interferes with with the consultation process and i just don't like wearing masks and mm. so we've got this so this is not, I'm not, you know, I'm not an anti-mask, I'm not in the slices. I, th- I think in Hong Kong, we maybe don't look at the at the evidence and we take, we sort of have this assumption that they're 100% effective and um, and they're not, are they? I mean, they, 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 they mitigate and they reduce risk, but what sort of risk am I going to get if I, if I wear a mask, say, let's say in a high risk, the Japan with three Cs, yeah. okay, very effective versus outdoor playing sport. Mm. Crazy. So I think, could, could you yeah. give us a summary? What you think? I think there's two important aspects to, to think about with masks. One is that for an individual, when they wear the mask, if it's a well-fitting surgical mask, uh, it's going to reduce their risk of getting infected. It's not going to totally protect them. It's not going to make them invincible, but it's definitely going to reduce the risk. But if you still wear a mask and you go into a crowded, uh, I don't know, crowded bar in Lang Kwai Fong, for example, uh, at night and there's cases there um, and you're wearing a mask, you, you still have a chance to get infected, I'm afraid. Uh, is not 100%, but it will reduce the risk. The other aspect, though, to think about is what's the consequence of mask-wearing policies on transmission as a whole? And we've estimated before the pandemic that, that it would likely reduce transmission of a respiratory virus by 
maybe 10 to 20 percent and i think that that's pretty consistent with what we've observed that that uh, and, that, and one of the reasons why there's this maybe distinction between masks work, working pretty well for an individual who wears them um, for, for, for a period of time in a, in a limited exposure setting. The distinction is in a population in, in daily lives, there's a lot of times when we don't wear masks. There's transition at home, there's transition in restaurants, there's transition in workplaces where people don't necessarily wear masks. Um, and so that a mask wearing policy can only stop transmission when masks are worn properly. And, and that we recognize won't be the full story. I'm a little bit concerned that we are too reliant on masks and asking too much of masks and in a way increasing fatigue with masks by making people wear them where they don't need to wear them, for example, outdoors on the street, and, and then limiting the, the, the value of the masks in other places where it might be more useful uh, to, for them to be worn, like in, in offices. And I, I imagine... People, I mean, I probably know, know people like this that wear the mask on their journey to work, including walking on the street when it's hot and humid, get all hot and sweaty, get into the workplace and take the mask off as the first thing they do when they're in their, their office, maybe with their cubicles, because they, they're, they're tired of wearing it. And I'd actually prefer them not to have to wear the mask walking outside where it's hot and humid, keep the mask clean and dry and ready to put on. And when they walk indoors into the higher risk environment, Put it on, but I, I also feel that w- with many things that uh, there should be an element of individual choice. And if there's people who who don't particularly want to wear a mask or or don't think they need to wear a mask, I'm, I'm okay with with the idea that they shouldn't have to wear a mask. Now there's some settings where where there might still be requirements, uh, and I would imagine things like visiting patients in hospitals. I mean that would be a sensible precaution, and, and that has been done for for a while asking the visitors to wear surgical masks. You don't know who else is in the ward. Um, but in, in offices, in, in, in other uh, congregate locations, I, I feel like there could be an element of choice. And I'm sure that for people who've recently recovered from infection, their risk of transmitting or getting infected again is, is actually minimal. So there's, there's not really any need for them to wear a mask, but they have to because it's, it's a requirement here. So I, I hope that in the longer term, we'll move to a more kind of a, a, a more open policy of letting people choose. And I'm sure many people will still choose to wear masks, but uh, not, not making it a requirement anymore. And also other mitigation around ventilation in buildings, which of course, and there's some good research in Hong Kong about ventilation, well, internationally, but particularly mm. in Hong Kong around ventilation. So there's more to mitigation than, than, than just That's masks. Right. I mean, if, if you can ensure clean air, I mean, I think there was 100, 100 plus years ago, there was a lot of work on clean water and, and sanitation of water to improve public health. And I think in the, the next 50 to 100 years, maybe maybe sooner, there'll be more consideration of sanitation of air in, in shared spaces. And we already have that in some parts of Hong Kong. The airport is brilliant. It's so well ventilated. It's open and airy. But there's also a lot of places in Hong Kong where the, the ventilation is not so good. It's, it's stuffy. And, and if there's a lot of people there, it's really not ideal. And maybe that's something which, which would be a, a place to improve in the future. For sure. Talking about... Um, hundred years ago, I, I, I read this fantastic review recently, and I've sort of been digging into it a bit more of the eighteen eighty eight mm. uh, flu mm. um, pandemic. And one of the things I found really fascinating about that was was actually how your profession. I mean, the epidemiology was so advanced at mm. that time. I mean, there's a sixty percent attack rate in mm. Sweden. We have we have you know 
data from individual cities. We can track the disease mm -hmm. spreading um, mm -hmm. uh, from Central Europe and getting into South America in the January of 1891, and the second wave was worse than the first. And it was coronavirus. Yeah, that, it, that the, the, the theory is that it may have been a coronavirus. That's called the Russian flu. But actually, the, there's, there's no evidence that it was an influenza virus. If anything, there's more evidence that it was a coronavirus. And it's subsequently become one of the four common cold coronaviruses yeah. that causes one, one of the many causes of, of common colds every year. But it was a pandemic a, a hundred odd years ago. Um, and I think COVID will, will follow the same trajectory. That's an interesting model, isn't it? The idea, because it was three, four, five waves mm -hmm. over about, well, it ended up being actually over as long as 10 years, wasn't it, mm -hmm. where, the, where the waves came through. And very interesting. I, I was reading some of the reviews and descriptions of what would classically be long COVID-like mm -hmm. symptoms, neurasthenia, psychological mm -hmm. disorders. And this is clearly a major issue. Um, we've discussed this, haven't we? The mm -hmm. And one of the questions, you know, the reasons that China is advocating maintaining zero COVID is, is, is of course, the acute impact on the population, but also what the unknown and long-term impact on the population is. And, but the, the, the literature from in, the international literature for chronic COVID, potentially increased risks of heart disease and strokes. Mm. I mean, it, we know that COVID is a chronic, multi-system inflammatory condition, mm. both acute and, and chronic. But at the same time, I look at the data coming from out of the UK, where you know one of the studies was suggesting fifty percent of people were having long-term symptoms. Mm. Um, but those symptoms included things like cough and, and, and loss of sense of smell from the early stages. Most of it was from from. Um, Alpha, or, or especially after Delta, mm. um, I've been actively looking for long COVID, and I'm just not seeing it. And, and my partners and I have been discussing this. We had a meeting today, actually, about it specifically. Um, have you got any literature in Hong Kong? I mean, my, I'm absolutely not downplaying the importance of COVID, both in the mm. short term and long term. But one of my questions is whether, either because of the immunity that we had in the population because of vaccination or because of something inherent to Omicron mm. or other reasons, whether we are uh, actually looking at, at, at something different that's happening in our population. Have you any thoughts on that? No, so I, I don't know. We've heard the incidence of long COVID could be, I don't know, 50%, but definitely 10 to 20%. Um, but different studies have different ways of, of measuring it and different ways of estimating it. We had more than a million confirmed cases in our fifth wave. And I'm not aware of a lot of reports of long COVID. I'm sure it's there. I'm sure there are people yeah. in Hong Kong who've got long COVID of, of all the different kinds as well. And I think I, I heard a, a, a breakdown of long COVID into different kind of categories. One was the, the post-viral syndrome that happens with a lot of different viral infections. You get longer term fatigue and so on. And there's a, a second category is the, the results of the organ damage for people who've had more serious COVID. Maybe their lungs got clogged up or whatever, and it takes quite some time for that to heal. And so that's a long-term consequence of the original infection. And then another type is the, the more persistent symptoms that maybe never quite go away, like the loss of smell or whatever. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I know plenty of people in Hong Kong who had COVID in the fifth wave, and I, I'm not aware of any of them having kind of more serious long-term consequences. In the UK, I also know people who've had COVID, and I know a couple with, with long COVID. But uh, I have trouble getting a handle on exactly how common it is. 
and I don't want to downplay it because I know there's people who are who are dealing with it, and it's I'm sure it's a serious issue. But uh, maybe it's not as that the frequency is not as high as as we fear. I mean, it, of course, what we don't know at the moment is how the excess mortality data is going to play out. There's these studies mm-hmm. looking at it. There's many case reports, and I know. You know, I've spoken to my own son about it. You know, seeing young people with, um, with with strokes, with, mm. with increased incidence of heart disease, with sudden death, with, but there's lots of MRI scan reports showing that there's mm. there's brain changes in terms of it's a prothrombotic, chronic inflammatory condition that causes thrombosis, causes mm. blood clots, and increases the risk of some of these more serious conditions. And whether we'll see that in the long term data. I could, that's going to take time. I guess you'll be looking at that data. Well, it'll be a year yeah. or two years before you'll get that. It'll be a couple of years away, and it's not always easy to interpret the death data at the population level because you don't know what what was underlying it. Uh, we've got the 2020 data already, and we can see there's an excess of cardiovascular deaths in 2020 in Hong Kong. And of course, there was not much COVID about in 2020. This is not COVID-related cardiovascular events. We think that it's because of avoidance of care. For people with with maybe symptoms or maybe people with heart conditions, for whatever reason they avoided going to see the doctor or they couldn't get the care that they needed, and unfortunately there was a, an increase in mortality. And I I don't know what what will happen in twenty twenty what's happened in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two, but I imagine there's there's also lo- lots of excess mortality, unfortunately, not necessarily linked to COVID infections, but maybe as a as a side effect of of the the COVID measures and the the population behavioural changes in seeking care and in availability of care. So uh, we'll be working on it, but it, it takes time to get that data. I think we, we'll get the 2021 mortality data later this year and, and a bit more than a year's time, we'll, we'll eventually get the 2022 death data because there's there's a lag between yes. when, when, we can, when we can get the data from the government. Yeah, I think it's going to be important to get this clinical data because in, in some sort of ways, if we're taking a macro public health view, if the hypothesis is correct that high vaccination levels or high immunity levels or possibly the newer variants cause less in the way of long COVID, then, then that, that would generally be positive for mm-hmm. normalising, we could say, to, to a greater degree. Um, if, of course, it's the opposite and, and, and we're going to have recurrent infections and, and, and each of these infections is going to carry risks of chronic increases in disease, um, that's going to be a you know a more worrying sort of picture in the longer term in terms of the impact on health systems and populations, and that data again fascinating from that Russian mm. uh, flu as was called it, it it did seem like there was a a, a lot of excess pathology. Yeah. The, the, the 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 figures were extraordinary six hundred seven hundred per million, mm. which is very close to we we saw about a thousand per million mortality. Mm. So uh, even a, and, and as I say, one of the things I, I was found fascinating was how um, advanced the epidemiology was in those in those days. It seems yeah. like every town had an epidemiologist. Was that the case? I, I think they were very good at monitoring health events. And what they were maybe not so good as we are is, is uh, understanding the underlying dynamics, the transition yeah. dynamics, and so on. But but they kept very good records and, and could very clearly see. They could very clearly describe what what was happening and, and so on. The, the the cause of death classifications were, were well established by by then. I mean that was something that that, that had been going on for some time. I mean the, time, the mid nineteenth century that 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 all started to try and identify the causes of of disease in in communities and monitor particularly deaths to find out what was killing people. Yeah. So um I I, I know that there was very good data uh, even a hundred hundred plus years ago, but uh, we we know much more now 
than we did then about transition dynamics and, and immune dynamics and so on. Um, and so we, we have a better chance now of, of predicting the future than, than they maybe would have back then. I got quite a bit of feedback from, from a, a tweet that I put out to say that we were meeting up and, and a few questions to ask on, on, on behalf of um, the contributors. I wonder, could, I, could I fire those off to you sure, then? If you, could, if you could quickly tell us what's going to happen over the next mm. year and, and <laughs> fix all these problems, we'd be very grateful. <laughs> so first question was, uh, when viruses evolve, do they generally weaken over time? So not, not necessarily. I think that the main concern for viruses is to be able to survive, and that means they need to be able to transmit and reproduce. Um, but what happens in host populations is an adaptation to, to live with the virus, you could say. And so typically that means immunity increases and maybe the impact of the virus decreases. And you, you get to a point where the virus doesn't cause as much disease as it used to um, in an immune population, but is still able to to transmit maybe by evolving to get around immunity to some extent. So, so what we could find in, in, in maybe five years time is that COVID is typically a very mild infection in most people. But if it was able to get into an isolated community in the Amazon jungle, who've never had it before, it could cause a lot of damage. You know, it could, it could, it could cause really serious disease. And I think that that would be the pattern that, that we, we recognize with other respiratory viruses, other common cold viruses that uh, for us, they're, they're typically very, very mild, but that's because we, we've got immunity to them. We, we've had immunity since we were exposed as children when our immunity was was, was very, very strong uh, against respiratory viruses. Uh, so that, that's the, the pattern that, that we can expect with COVID. Whether or not individual variants would be more or less transmissible, more or less severe, is difficult to predict, but the general long-term trajectory is that viruses will be able to continue to spread by evolving to escape immunity and that the immunity that they can't escape is the immunity against severe disease uh, that we have from vaccinations and infections. That means infections on average become milder and milder in people with that immunity. Yeah, I was always taught as a medical student that viruses attenuate, but even when you think about it intuitively, viruses really are... The evolutionary pressure is to be able to travel, isn't it? It's mm. to be able to transmit. And once you've transmitted and you've reproduced within your host, you've done your job. So there's no real evolutionary disadvantage to an to a virus causing more severe disease, so to speak. So I think that's probably just a, it, as you say, it's it, it the 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 immunity within the population has a tendency to build, and, mm. and so they, the effect is that they attenuate, but. That's right. But it doesn't invariably mean that they're going to. We could still have a bad one coming. That's right. I think we, we can use flu as an example where from year to year, you know, flu causes mostly mild symptoms in most people, but there is a, a group of people who get, get flu and it's more serious and they end up in hospital. Yeah. And some years it's, it's worse than others. And what can we do to repair the harm that this pandemic has caused for children? I think it's it's really tough because I think in, in the first two years of the pandemic, schools were either closed or or only operating with limited hours and limited capacity for for most of that time actually, and that means there's a lot of miseducation, a lot of misdevelopment uh, in terms of their social skills and so on. And even now, schools are not back a hundred percent, and I I feel like they should be. I know that there's some requirements and, and restrictions on on which schools are allowed to go back. To, to full day schooling. And even when they do go back, there's, there's restrictions in the classrooms and restrictions on activities. But I feel like it, it, it would be ideal if schools could go back 
to normal sooner. But having said that, the, the control measures in place in schools at the moment are limiting transmission. That's very clear from the daily statistics. So, so if you're just advocating on public health grounds from COVID, sorry, if you're just advocating for, for related to COVID and public health, then you, you would prefer to see transmission controlled in schools. But, but there's more to public health than COVID and, and, uh, get, getting schools back to normal, I think would, would help a lot of children, uh, who don't necessarily need to be so worried about, about COVID. I totally agree. I mean, there's, you know, health is not the opposite of disease. Health is a positive construct and kids should be out laughing, playing, jumping and, and, you know, falling over things and occasionally hurting themselves. And, and, and actually, yeah, I have to say bringing up children in a culture of, of, of fear is, is not a healthy view in my view. I think you know, we've, we've got a lot to, lot to learn from this process. Mm. What's the future of the vaccine pass? Should we rip it up? Well, I don't know. I, I, I did already advocate for an end to the vaccine pass. I think most other parts of the world have, if they have used them, they've put an end to them when, when the vaccine coverage has reached a high enough level. But in Hong Kong, there, there's no no sign of, 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 a, of an end to that. And I think the, the, the Minister for Health, Professor Sophia Chan, said that one of the reasons she'd like to keep the vaccine pass in place is to reward the people who only got vaccinated to comply with the, the terms of the vaccine pass. And if that's the case, then then maybe, maybe the vaccine pass wouldn't end for, for some time to ensure that those people are rewarded. But the the opposite of that is, of course, that the people who, who for whatever reason, didn't want to get vaccinated, including people who got two doses and an infection and, and are not recommended to get their third dose, but, but maybe didn't report the infection to the government, those people may, may not be able to, to access um, public facilities and government offices and hospitals and, and restaurants and so on because of the the vaccine pass uh, restrictions. So I, I, I hope that, that there will be a timeline to, to to end the need for a vaccine pass, but uh, I'm not sure. One question was comparing data between Hong Kong and Singapore. In many ways, the two cities are, are, are similar. Are there lessons we can learn from comparing the two sets of data? In particular, Hong Kong appeared to have a high mortality rate, and in particular, it seems like a high mortality rate in the younger population. Are there, are there, are there reasons we can find from look from 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 comparing that data? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. In absolute terms, the number of severe cases in children in Hong Kong is still very low. The majority of, of severe cases were, were in were in older people, and the majority of deaths were in older people. But there were some notable uh, cases of, of severe COVID in younger children and even some deaths. I remember at the beginning of the fifth wave, there were there were a handful of deaths in younger children. And strangely, that hasn't been reported in Singapore. I'm not sure why, because I don't think that the, the vaccine uptake in, in younger children had, had reached a, a high level. I think they vaccinated down to age five, but, but uh, at the time when they had infections in the community, that the vaccine coverage was not particularly high in that group. So it, it's a little bit of a mystery um, I, I know that in Hong Kong, one of the issues that's difficult to deal with is the, the policy on isolation of cases and also the, the quarantine of family members and the separation of children and, and family members. And that has led in some cases to delayed seeking of medical care. And I don't know whether that played a role in any of the severe COVID cases in children in Hong Kong. I would have a hypothesis that in some of them it may have. Um, and in Singapore, in contrast, if there's very rapid seeking of medical care for, 
for children who who have more serious symptoms without the fear of, of them being separated from their family members and and of, you know the other family members and other children being sent to quarantine as well then I, I think that may be a factor but uh, there's notable differences in in the impact of covid not only between Hong Kong and Singapore but also other parts of Asia Japan's managed to keep their mortality rate very low despite yeah. not really controlling covid that well uh, they, they've they had a lot of ups and downs in the, the COVID numbers, but they haven't had too many deaths, I would say. And, um, and then other parts of, of Asia, I think Australia and New Zealand did very, very well in the first two years. But then they're now struggling with, with in Australia, with, with not only a large number of COVID cases, but also a large number of flu cases. So they lifted their, their public health measures at the, in their autumn. Uh, which is now turning into their winter because they're in the southern hemisphere, and that uh, they've got a lot of flu all of a sudden, and also they've got their exit waves with COVID, and so the hospitals are under extreme pressure. And I think if they could think about it a bit more, that they might think again about when to relax the measures and maybe not relaxing the measures in in the autumn and then the winter, because that you know that that's when you you're already expecting pressure from from flu and other respiratory viruses. Um, and, and you maybe don't want to deal with a COVID exit wave at the same time. Yeah, the other group in comparison, Hong Kong and Singapore, I think, I think is the elderly as well, mm. isn't it? But, and I, I have to say, I'm surprised there hasn't been more discussion about this because it looks to me like significant numbers of those deaths were not directly caused by COVID. Mm. Uh, almost certainly a result of the hospital system being overloaded, whether that was dehydration, whether it was asphyxiation. We saw the we saw the photographs of the hospitals when it got crowded at that time. So, mm. will there be an analysis of the uh, mortality rates of Hong Kong, Singapore, as far as you know? Is this something that, that, that the well, governments I, are looking at? I would have thought so. And remember, in Singapore, the vaccine uptake in, in older people is very, very high, uh, including with third doses. And so they've avoided the problem that we have in Hong Kong with vaccine hesitancy, which has a lot of different causes. Um, I, I still feel like the overall strategy is one of the, the factors contributing to vaccine hesitancy, where if the, the government was to reassure people that, that the government will protect them from getting COVID, then I can understand why some people would choose not to get vaccinated because they're trusting the government to protect them from getting COVID. And in Singapore, the government explicitly said they would not do that. The government explicitly said they will not protect people from getting COVID. Uh, they will transition away from zero COVID and they will have COVID in the community. And older people, younger people, everyone should expect to get infected at some point. And they, they should get vaccinated to, to reduce that risk. And in vaccine, in Singapore, they did use a vaccine pass. They did use other measures to, to increase vaccine uptake in the elderly. They, they thought of a lot of strategies to get that to work. And I think they did a, a pretty good job. I mean, it's, they have very high vaccine coverage and, and still very few severe COVID cases cumulatively, uh, which which is quite different to Hong Kong, of course. For sure that's the case. And maybe I'm being overly simplistic about it here, but I, in my own mind, I see this as, you know, we had an excess of deaths because we didn't vaccinate the vulnerable. Mm. But we also had another excess of deaths because the hospital system crashed. And those are two different policy issues, so to speak, to learn for the future if we're going to look at um, that one. Um, 
Is Ben ever invited to participate in policy consultations? Yeah, I'm, I'm a member of advisory committees for the government. I'm a member of the, the Joint Scientific Committee on, on Vaccines and Emerging Infectious Diseases. And I, I make my point in, in those meetings. Um, and I, I do think that I have an influence on policy, but obviously I'm just one of many advisors. And there's other advisors with their own perspectives and their own knowledge and background and so on. And so uh, I, I, there's, there's no way I would expect my, my advice to be the one that's heeded every time. But I, I, I have noticed that, that in the past, sometimes my, my suggestions are, are, are taken on board and, and policies are, are modified as a consequence of, of my advice or suggestions. Um, but I'm just one of many, many advisors. Okay, well, that's, that's fantastic. Thanks yet again for catching up. And maybe we'll, we'll leave it on that note. Anybody um, who's been disappointed in any aspects of the Hong Kong policy, um, it's Ben's responsibility and uh, he's available on Twitter. You can leave your comments and uh, send your messages and uh, I will filter them and give him in a more positive way. So uh, thanks again. Thank you very much. Nice to see you again. See you. Bye. As always, the links to the papers in this podcast, including further articles expanding upon the issues discussed, are available on our website in both English and Chinese at www.otmp.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. And if you have any questions for David and Ben, please feel free to leave them in our comments box. Thanks for listening.